Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which is not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Thank you, Lord, that here you tell us again that you have given us the, the very words of life, and we need life, life eternal. And so will you cause your word to speak to our hearts, cause your spirit to move us and mold us and to give us ears to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be seated. So as we continue to, to move into uh, the, the next chapter in seeing the, the various uh, appearances of Jesus, we read this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Different location. By the way, for those, of, uh, those, those who uh, think in terms of conspiracies and uh, uh, visions and things like that, that's one of the arguments for the resurrection is that when it came to the appearances, it was not only to, to many different people, different aged people, all people that uh, he appeared to were not expecting him to appear, at least the first time they saw him, but also in different locations. It wasn't as though... Uh, uh, people went to a particular place because they heard Jesus is seen here. Now, in, in this case, what we see is that, uh, that the last two appearances that we have talked about, the disciples were in a locked room in Jerusalem. They were, they were terrified. They didn't know what was to happen to them before the first appearance most of them had not seen him a few had they were sharing with one another before the second appearance Thomas was there he had not seen him but they could have I presume just stayed there in Jerusalem and, and locked themselves in and and uh, that would have been uh, what the church looked like early on. 
but they moved. Why did they move? Well, we read over in Mark 14, verse 28, it says, after, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This is Jesus to his disciples. And then in Matthew 28, 10, he's speaking to uh, the women and he's wanting them to remind them. He says, go and tell my brothers to go up to Galilee. There they will see me. Why Galilee? Well, they were really going home. They were going to a, a place where they were uh, familiar, a place where much of Jesus' ministry took place. They were going to the place where they had been called. Before I came to St. Andrews uh, back in 2006, when it, it looked like that indeed I would be changing ministries, uh, I went back and, and read a book called A Man Called Peter. And the reason I read that is because God had used that uh, when I was a young man. That was one of the things that I had read when uh, he uh, began to, to call me into the ministry. And so I decided before I began this ministry, I wanted to go back to kind of the beginning of my ministry. And I, I read it through and it took me back. It took me back in terms of, of memory and, and being reminded of, of what it was like in those days, looking forward and I didn't know what. And then here I was much later in my ministry looking back but it took me to a good place. I think that's what we, we see here. Jesus understood that. J.C. Ryle said he knew well the influences, the influence which scenery and places exercise over the mind of man. He would recall to the memory of his disciples all that they had witnessed in the early days of his ministry where he had begun with them. There he would have one of his last interviews with them before leaving the world. So he, he sent them back to, to Galilee and then we read in verse two, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee the, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter, that's seven uh, total if you include John. Simon Peter uh, said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. How many of you, how many of you have ever gone fishing all night or all day and caught nothing. Raise your hand if you have ever done that. Okay. So the rest of you have never actually been fishing then as well. <laughs> so what we have here is the experts. Those that, that are making a living 
and they're out there all night and they're ready to come back in. Verse four, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. We're going to find out that they were about 100 yards uh, uh, away. That if you picture that, and it was, the sun was just coming up. It might have been, you know, a little foggy or whatever. Uh, picture from here to the new life field or here to the bottom of our, our property. And so you can, you can see why they wouldn't have really necessarily recognized that it was uh, Jesus standing on the shore. Jesus said to them, uh, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, nope. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now here's where uh, uh, many uh, commentators like to hone in and I, I tend to agree with them in terms of, of, of Jesus, the one who called them to be fishers of men. He is showing them one more time who they had to depend upon if they were actually going to succeed in being fishers of men. Here's, here he's, he's reminding them, because after all, they were the experts, right? They knew how to fish. And so going fishing, I, I don't know that they even necessarily would have prayed before they went fishing or uh, they certainly didn't seek Jesus' advice. He wasn't around. So they go fishing, and what are they depending upon? They are depending upon their own skills, their own ability. We will go, let's go there. We've caught a lot of fish there before. We've made a living doing that. We know what we're doing. And they caught nothing until Jesus says, okay, here's where you put your net. They did it. And ultimately, their net becomes full. And here's the point. We do things our way. We try to become fishers of men in our community. We do it our way. And likely, we're going to have empty nets in terms of real eternal value. We do it his way. We cannot fail he's showing them that again now this whole scene is really uh, is reminiscent of the the account in Luke 5 uh, that was the the front end of his ministry Jesus is calling his first disciples Peter James and John he did the same thing and evidently that re reminded John of that scene as well because here's what it says next with verse seven. That disciple whom Jesus loved, we've already established, that's John talking about himself. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Which I, I think it's funny instead of just doing something 
he, he kind of tells Peter because he knows he will do something, okay? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. Which, by the way, seems to me, that seems like the opposite thing that you would want to do. If you're 100 yards away and you're going to swim or swim and wade, wade in, but he's, he's going to the Lord here. Now, contrast that, uh, Peter's reaction here, with when he first met Jesus and, and that scene happened where Jesus told them where to put the net and they said, no, we've, we've already fished all night. We know all about it. He said, he said put it there and uh, the net was full of fish. You know what Peter's reaction was then? Depart from me, for I'm a sinner. That was his reaction before Jesus' ministry in his life. Now, seeking the Savior, he cannot wait to get to him. He still knew what a sinner he was. But he was beginning to understand grace. I'm convinced of it. He'd been transformed. He had seen the risen Lord. Look at verse 8 then. The other disciples came in the boat. I, I would love to have heard that conversation. Well, there goes Peter. Okay, let's row in. <laughs> you know, let's, let's go. Uh, the other disciples uh, came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land uh, but about 100 yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in the place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now let me remind you of the last time in the Gospel of John we saw this phrase about a charcoal fire. It's not so much a, a common phrase and so it fascinated me when I saw it and I actually brought us to this passage. It was the night that Peter denied Jesus. He was warming himself by what the Gospel of John calls a charcoal fire. He was trying to blend in, trying to lay low, but he was in the courtyard of, of the high priest. But now everything's different. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them, which, you know, commentators down through the centuries have tried to figure out why is there 153? What does that mean? And... Um, Nobody has, I don't think. I haven't seen any uh, explanation. I think it's just simply that it's just an illustration that this is, you know, they're, caref they're careful with their history. They're looking at, at details. But there was a ton of fish, and they were big ones, it says, which is, you would expect that from a fisherman to say, oh, they were all large, right? <laughs> 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. You know, um, when I'm in groups of people that are being kind of spiritual, and you've, you've probably been there too, where they are doing things like saying, uh, well, let's all uh, share our favorite verse, or do you have a life verse? I love to say, well, my life verse is uh, John 21, 12. And, and of course, nobody knows what that is. And, and then, I, then they say, what's that? And I say, well, Jesus said, come and have breakfast. I, that's... <laughs> I just like that verse. <laughs> but I think it also shows how here he is. He's still serving them, isn't he? I'm sure they were, they were starving after the night and he could have just gone on and taught them or done what he was going to do, which we know he's actually going to restore Peter. Look at that next week. He could have gone right into that. But he said, let's eat together. And then the, the last part of verse 12. Now, none of the uh, disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So let's go back and see what, what we, we see. That's the passage. First of all, I want you to notice they were together. And I, I don't think we should minimize that. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two others of the disciples were together. That may not seem like that big of a deal, but, but think about what they had just gone through. The crucifixion. Everything in their world seemed to be falling apart. They scatter. Some, we know, behave badly. They're apart. And even after the resurrection, it seems some just kind of went on home. Their shepherd had been killed. And what happens when the shepherd's killed is that the sheep scatter. But here we find them in Galilee. Uh, Galilee is where everyone knew them. Everyone knew that these were the ones that once dropped their nets and followed Jesus. <clears throat> and everyone there knew what had happened to Jesus as well. We might think that all the followers would totally scatter, but instead what we see is that they gathered together like they were still a group what had happened? The resurrection had happened. That's what had happened. Alexander McLaren writes, there's only one explanation. Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. That drew them together once more. You cannot build a church on a dead Christ. 
And of all the proofs of the resurrection, I take it that there is none that is harder for an unbeliever to account for than the simple fact that Christ's disciples held together after he was dead and presented a united front to the world. And none of them broke, ever. They went to, most of them, to martyrdom. They were killed. And none of them ever said, oh, you know, it was just a big lie. John lived to be an old man and never changed his mind because he knew what he had seen. So who was there? Again, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and two others, and John. Many of the same group that was called from that area before. Now let's think about that. So you have Simon Peter. Uh, Peter had denied Jesus three times. He was about to be restored, about to be commissioned. But he, he didn't know that, and the disciples didn't know that either. None of that was known at that time because at that point he had not been restored. Thomas called the doubter. I, I think he was an unbeliever until, until what we looked at last week when he stood before the risen Christ. That was the church in that day. Now, the reason I point that out is not to look down on them or anything. But notice that the church was not made up of the powerful or the rich or those without flaws, but rather those who were doubters, deniers, and sinners of all kinds of variety. Those are the ones that Jesus chose to do his work through. And by the way, if anything, this again attests to the truth of the scripture. If you, were, if you were making all this up, you wouldn't talk about how unqualified these people were. But the scripture is brutally honest about who his followers were, and that's because it's true. But here should be our encouragement. That's a reflection of us too. Maybe you feel like one or, or more of those when I described what they were. You too can be used by him. And it's a testimony. These are the ones that were called at the beginning. They, they had ups and downs all through their ministry. They, they, didn't have, they didn't finish well at the end of Jesus' life. But here they are back together. And what we see is not their great perseverance or their greatness, but we see the perseverance of the Lord. This is what, this is what Jesus said. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. 
Lots had tried to snatch them out of the father's hand, but it wasn't going to happen. And that should be our encouragement as well. So why were they together? Why fishing? Well, some, some have surmised, well, they must have given up on their faith. They just went back to their old life. I don't think so. I think, yes, they, they went to their, their old profession in a sense. But they were where Jesus told them to be. And that's where he'll meet us when we have hearts longing to meet him. Strange place to wait. Dirty, wet, maybe scaly boat. But it's, it's better than them wandering around the synagogue or locked in a room somewhere. And it should be a reminder to us. That's where he's going to come to you in your, in your shop, in your school, in your work, in your home, in your neighborhood. It doesn't have to be just here. But when we have longing hearts for him, expecting to meet Jesus, he'll come. So a few applications here. Notice the disciples received Jesus back. That was prior to, to him being reinstated. They took him back. They're, they're uh, welcoming him. They knew what he had done. But just like old times, Peter says, I'm going fishing. They said, ah, we'll go with you. And they did. So some of you who, who may not feel worthy to approach Jesus, here's the point. You're not worthy to approach Jesus. You aren't. And that's why he comes to us. That's why he came to them. He delighted to come to them and to serve them and to eat with them, and he will to you too. And they received him back. I want to take you all the way back to the, uh, the first sermon in this series. It was on the first Sunday in Advent in December of 2017. We've been in John for a while. It's how we began Advent, and I... I told you we're going to continue on till the end of the book. In that sermon, I, I took you to the verses that I read earlier, John 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I took you there because I wanted to tell you why I called this series Believe. This is the point of the book. This is the high point of the book. This is the reason for this book that we might have faith 
and believe. So let's talk about the faith again. What does it mean to believe in that way so that we might have life in his name? Let me try to explain it this way. Some of you have a medication that you are taking that has either saved your life or is keeping you alive. Or you know somebody where that's the case. Let me tell you about another medication. Consider a, a bottle of medication I'm gonna call Soter. This medication is, uh, is one that is 100% effective. It will absolutely cure. It has cured countless individuals who've taken it. Now, it's not a real medication. I just made it up. But let's say that, that every one of us in this room has the disease that this medication is made for. Every one of us. Now, some of you might, might say, that's great. I know how effective that medication is. It will cure me if I take it. But you know what? That wouldn't be enough, would it? Just knowing that, just believing that, that wouldn't do you any good at all. What, what would be absolutely necessary is not only do you acknowledge that, that this can cure you, but you take it. And you take it in. That's when you've actually received it. You consume it. If not, you cannot benefit from it just by your faith that it could help you. Do you get it? That makes sense? By the way, soter is uh, the Greek word for savior. It's not enough just to say, yeah, I think he walked out of the tomb probably. I think there is a God and, and yeah, he could save me. But you've got to consume that. You've got to believe it, which is trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. And if you do that, the result is 100%, and it's life in his name. Let's bow together. Lord, will you give us ears to hear you? If you're calling today, give us hearts that are open to you, that do more than just 
acknowledge, yes, I, I have a need there. But give us hearts of trust in Jesus Christ alone. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We respond together this morning by singing number 267, the day of resurrection, earth, tell it out abroad. Let's stand together to sing 267. Let me encourage you to speak to one another before you leave the sanctuary and I'll be at the front door if you're visiting with us. I'd love the opportunity to meet you. If you're visiting with us, also remember we have uh, those books available at either entrance or if you'd like to find out more about what we were talking about this morning, any of our pastors would love to speak with you further about that. Now, children of the living God, will you reach out and receive the Lord's benediction? And now, may the peace of Christ, he who is alive, may it rest in our hearts. And God's people said...